Thanks very much, and good evening, everyone. I was expecting to be the only one here tonight when I looked out and saw the weather, so it's great to have you here. So I'm, I'm a neonatologist by training, which means I'm a paediatrician who specialises in looking after preterm babies. And what I'd like to talk to you about tonight is, first of all, what preterm birth means, how we define it, how common it is, and a little bit about the babies, a little bit about the history of looking after these very preterm babies. Then I'd like to move on to tell you a bit about how their survival has changed over time as technology and medical care has improved, before focusing finally on how we feed these preterm babies. Now that sounds a very simple thing to do, just providing food for babies. After all, it should be readily there. The food's provided by the mother, the baby just has to cry, and it's there on tap. But of course, for preterm babies, that's not quite so straightforward. And we really think of preterm birth as being a nutritional emergency. And throughout the course of my talk, I hope that will become clear why. So what do we mean when we talk about preterm birth? Well, the definition is birth before 37 weeks of gestation, when 40 weeks is full term. Now, normally in medicine, we have very good reasons for why we define things the way we do. But for preterm birth, that's not the case there is actually no good reason why it's 37 weeks. There's no biological reason, there's no physiological reason, there's no medical reason, and there's not even a statistical reason, which is what we usually fall back on when we don't know what else to, to do. But nevertheless, um, that's what we're stuck with. That's, what it means really is that when people say, I was a few days early, they may actually be right. Even if they were born at 39 weeks and three days, they may be right. Because really, being preterm depends on the individual baby and how well prepared that baby is for birth. Now, preterm birth in New Zealand affects about 7.6% of the population. So that means one in 12 babies will be born preterm. Rates around the world vary quite widely. And in fact, in New Zealand in the 1980s, the rate was only 4.2%. So the rate of preterm birth in New Zealand has gone up by 80% in 40 years. That's a huge increase. Around the world, the rate is still 4.5% in some parts of the world. So, for example, in the Netherlands, Denmark, and other parts of Northern Europe, it's still round about that. In contrast, in the United States, it's closer to 12%, and in parts of Africa, it's around 15%. But preterm birth has always been with us. It's just that until the last 100 years or so, preterm babies mostly died. There was nothing that could be done for them. They were usually put in a drawer, provided whatever milk was available, and they either made it or they didn't. There have, however, been some very famous people who were born preterm. For example, in 1571, the famous astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler was born at 32 weeks gestation, or as he put it in his own notes, 222 days nine hours and 54 minutes. He doesn't tell us how he knows it was exactly that length. Um, but that's a good example of someone who survived and did very well. In the next century, in 1642, Isaac Newton was born preterm. And he weighed three pounds at birth and was described as being so puny that he could fit into a quart pot. But he survived and obviously did exceptionally well too. In 1873, Winston Churchill was said to have been born somewhere between four and six weeks preterm. 
although more recent biographers suggest that in reality that was put out there to gloss over the fact that he was conceived out of wedlock. Those of you that are more of my vintage than some of my students who are here will remember Stevie Wonder, famous musician and songwriter. He was born in 1950 and he was eight weeks preterm, being born at about 32 weeks gestation. Now, he had the classical lung disease of premature birth called hyaline membrane disease. And these babies really, really struggled to breathe. And the only treatment in 1950 was hyperbaric oxygen. So they put the baby in a little incubator, put 100% oxygen in the incubator, and hoped for the best. And in Stevie Wonder's case, it worked. It certainly got him through his breathing difficulties, so he survived. But the unknown side effect of that was his blindness. And in fact, Stevie Wonder is blind because of that 100% oxygen, which caused fibrosis at the back of his eyes and led to retinal detachment and blindness. And then the last example I want to give is in 1963, August 1963, when the fourth child of JFK, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, was born at 34 weeks so only six weeks preterm. He also had hyaline membrane disease, and he also was put in an incubator in 100% oxygen. Unfortunately, he didn't survive and died two days later. And the story goes that he was born in Massachusetts, of course, because that's where JFK was from. And just across the Great Lakes is Toronto, and they were actually leading the world in how to care for preterm babies with respiratory disease. And it was said that this baby could have been transferred to Toronto and maybe would have survived. But um, it was not felt appropriate for the son of the president of the most powerful country in the world to need to seek care in another country. People also say that maybe the course of history would have run differently had Patrick Bouvier Kennedy not been born preterm. Because then he would have been born in October 1963, just a month before JFK was shot and maybe he wouldn't have gone to Dallas. However, I don't buy into that theory because when JFK's first son was born, um, quite a few years earlier, he was still born. And JFK was sailing in the south of France and he heard the news that his first child was still born and he decided that he'd stay just where he was and carry on sailing for another week or two until his very best friend cabled him and said, Jack, if you don't come back, you can kiss your career goodbye, and he was on the next plane home. So I think pretty clearly he'd have been in Dallas. The other big effect that Patrick Bouvet Candy's death had, however, was to result in a huge injection of investment in how to care for preterm babies. And that investment really transformed the care of preterm babies. Really, in 1960 was the first time that the term neonatology, or from new birth, was, was defined. And before then, there had been some sporadic care of babies, but these weren't really in hospitals. In fact, the care for babies before the middle of the last century was actually in peep shows in amusement parks. So, for example, the most famous one was on Coney Island in New York, where there's the Coney Island Amusement Fair, and one of the main attractions in that amusement fair was a, 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 a show that showed you preterm babies in incubators. The punters paid 25 cents, and they could go in and look at these preterm babies. 
that were deliberately dressed in oversized clothes to make them look even smaller than they were, and wrapped in pink and blue ribbons, depending on whether they were boys or girls. Now, obviously, we think it sounds pretty ghastly for these preterm babies to be on display in a freak show. But in fact, the facility was scrupulously clean and hygienic. And although it made the um, person who ran it exceptionally rich, it undoubtedly also did result in the survival of many of these babies who otherwise would have died. So in round about the 60s um, and 70s is when neonatal care in New Zealand began to take place. And in this part of the world, the first sort of training of doctors in neonatal care was only um, put into place around that time. And since the care for preterm birth became more organized, babies began to survive in ever greater numbers. In 1955, the percentage of babies who were born below a kilo um, that survived was about 5%. Very, very low indeed. As I say, really down to chance. And there is one New Zealander who played a huge role in the changing landscape of the percentage of babies who were born preterm who survived. And that person is um, Professor Sir Graham or Mont Liggins, who was an obstetrician here in Auckland, originally from Thames. And he was investigating preterm birth. He wanted to know what actually made women go into labor preterm. And he had heard about these sheep in California that actually didn't go into labor at all. A normal sheep gestation is five months. And he had heard that these sheep in the Sierra Nevada didn't go into labor at all. And he thought, well, maybe if I can understand why they don't go into labor, I can also understand why birth can happen prematurely. So he went over to California um, in the early 60s and went to study these sheep. And he found that they were grazing high up in the Sierra Nevada. They were grazing in these alpine meadows and were grazing upon um, a flower called Veratrum californicum, the California corn lily. And he worked out that a toxin in this plant was responsible for destroying a really important gland in the, right in the middle of the fetal brain called the pituitary gland, which sits just above where your optic nerves cross right in the middle of the brain. And the destruction of this pituitary gland in the developing fetus had two effects. First of all, it also destroyed the, where those two nerves of the eyes cross over, meaning that these sheep, when they finally were born, were born cyclopic, with just one eye in the middle of their head. But the other thing was it also destroyed the hormones that stimulate cortisol production by your adrenal gland. Those hormones are corticotrophin-releasing hormone and adren adrenocorticotrophic hormone produced by the pituitary gland. And in the sheep, those hormones are essential for inducing labor. So when the pituitary gland was destroyed, these sheep didn't go into labor. So Mont then thought, well, if that's the case, and the absence of this gland means that the sheep don't go into labor, maybe if I infuse cortisol, I can induce them to birth early, and that this will give me insight into preterm birth. And so he came back to New Zealand, and he worked at National Women's Hospital in the days when it was next to Cornwall Park. And in fact, he kept his sheep on Cornwall Park. And when he needed one, he just popped out and got one. And he infused cortisol into the sheep, and sure enough, they delivered preterm. And so he was studying preterm birth, but he was also an exceptionally astute observational man. And he noticed that the lambs that were born preterm 
whose mothers had received cortisol, their lungs were inflated, meaning that they'd been able to breathe. And he deduced that the cortisol given to the mothers had also had the effect of maturing the fetal lungs. And he went on to test this very shortly afterwards in a large randomized controlled trial of Auckland women, about, 1500, about 1,200 women, and he showed that giving the mothers corticosteroids halved death in their preterm babies. It also halved the incidence of severe brain bleeds and some other complications. And this treatment now is the gold standard for um, mothers who are at risk of preterm birth, developed here in Auckland. And so with that treatment and with other advances, technological advances, for example, um, ventilation strategies, um, delivering surfactant to preterm babies, survival has steadily increased from the mid-1970s, so that now, if you're born between 500 and 1,000 grams, your chances of survival are 80 to 85%. And here in New Zealand, we look after babies as early as 23 weeks, so that's 17 weeks early, and even they have a survival of round about 50%. If you're born the size of that Sir Isaac Newton was born, your chances of survival now in New Zealand are 90 to 95%. So enormous increases in survival that have happened over that period of time. And that's meant that for neonatologists, when initially all of our focus was actually on keeping babies alive and how do we help them to survive, now turning our attention to how can we optimize the outcome for these babies so that when they're born preterm, so when they grow up, they have the best possible lives. And of course, being born preterm does come with risks of long-term consequences. These babies are born extremely preterm, extremely immature, and they have an awful lot of developing to do outside the womb that should occur inside the womb. But nevertheless, outcomes for these babies are very, very good. So for example, if you're born extremely preterm, below, say, 1,500 grams, your chances of surviving um, without any problems whatsoever are about 50%. And of having um, a moderate or significant problem is about 15 to 20%. But obviously, we want to try and improve the outcomes for that 15 to 20% who have significant problems, and also the other 35% who have um, some problems, although not so severe. It's also becoming clear that if you're born preterm, you have an increased risk of other diseases such as hypertension and diabetes later in life. And if we think about why this might be, we can think that perhaps there are three possible ways we can think about it. First, the pregnancy has ended preterm. And why is that? And is it that whatever has led to the pregnancy to end preterm has also resulted in a problem for the baby when the baby grows up, whether it's a maternal illness, whether it's a placental disorder, whatever has led to the preterm birth also leads to a problem in the baby. Or it could be the very fact of being born preterm, being ripped untimely from the womb, as Shakespeare put it. Maybe that in itself results in changes in the baby that will have lifelong consequences. And indeed, we know that there is some evidence for this. So, for example, some of the work we've been doing about the effects of preterm birth on babies show that the way that organs develop change abruptly at the time of birth because of changes in hormones like your cortisol and thyroid hormones. 
Perhaps one of the best and simplest examples is your heart. During fetal life, your heart is made up of a bunch of cells called myocytes, cardiomyocytes, and they have a single nucleus, just like most cells in your body. And because they have a single nucleus, they can divide, so you can produce more and more heart cells, and your heart can get bigger and bigger as you grow in, in the womb. But when you're born, those heart cells fuse under the, under the influence of cortisol and thyroid hormone and become multinucleated cells. And once you have more than one nucleus in a cell, that cell can no longer divide because the parts of the nucleus can't separate out because there's more than one. So you can no longer form any more heart cells. All the heart cells can do is get bigger. Hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia, as we call it. And so if you're born preterm, that process happens earlier than it should do. And you're left with fewer heart cells, which perhaps puts you at risk of heart disease later in life. A similar thing happens in the kidney. The units of your kidney called nephrons that are responsible for filtering your blood normally continue to increase in number until just before term. But if you're born preterm, it stops abruptly and switches to a functional outcome. So certainly being born preterm in and of itself might have these long-term outcomes. And then finally, there's of course what happens after birth. You're born at 24 weeks, four months before you should do. You spend four months in an environment that is different to the one you should be in. You have stimuli, light, sound, touch, smell, taste that you shouldn't have in the way that you shouldn't have. Also pain, of course, from all the procedures that babies have. And perhaps those stimuli impact upon the baby's development. And then, of course, there's the care that we provide for the babies. What effect that might have on them. And one of the major things we do for the babies, as I've mentioned, is provide nutrition for them. Because these babies, unlike a term baby, can't just cry when they're hungry and be put to the breast and suckle at the breast and take whatever milk they want and then go to sleep. They're born immaturely and they are unable to coordinate the suck, breathe and swallow, which sounds very simple, but in fact is quite complex. To get those three things working together at the same time is quite difficult. Individually, babies actually do all of those when they're in the womb. So babies suck in the womb. Those of you who have seen the latest ultrasound scans with their incredible resolution have probably seen ultrasound images of fetuses with their thumb in their mouth sucking. Babies breathe in the womb. In fact, this isn't practice for being able to breathe after birth. It's, in fact, absolutely essential for development of the lung. Babies who don't breathe in the womb, their lungs don't grow. And babies swallow in the womb. Babies actually start swallowing in the womb from as early as 11 weeks gestation. Initially, it's just tiny little bits of fluid, amniotic fluid, that they swallow. And then gradually, as they become more and more mature, they swallow more and more fluid so that by the time they get to about 35 weeks, your average baby is swallowing 750 mils of amniotic fluid a day. Now, if you think about that in terms of your average 70 kilogram person, that's 14 and a half liters a day on a per weight basis. That's a lot. So all of those things are there before birth, but the babies need to coordinate them after birth. And also, the way that the gut deals with food 
um, is also not mature. So if we think about eating, it won't come as a surprise to any of you that it has to go in one end and come out the other. And for that to happen, there needs to be a coordinated wave of contraction along the length of your gut. It's no good if the parts of the gut that are more distal contract before the bits that are more proximal, nearer to the top, because everything is going to go the wrong way. And during fetal life, the bits of the gut are contracting, but they're not contracting in any ordered fashion. So a bit might contract up here, and then a bit down there, and then a bit in the middle, fairly random. And it's as the baby matures, mostly between 32 and 36 weeks, that those contractions become organized and develop into what we call mature migrating motor complexes, which means that they're mature in their nature, and they migrate down the gut from the esophagus all the way along the length of the gut, and so that the food that's ingested moves down the gut in an ordered fashion. So all of those things are necessary for these preterm babies to be able to feed. In addition, preterm babies, when they're born, are not really ready for that switch from intrauterine life to extrauterine life. A term baby has spent the month or six weeks before birth preparing explicitly for the time when the umbilical cord is cut and that ready supply of nutrients from the mother and the reverse excretion of waste products from the baby to the mother is severed. And the baby, in the last five weeks of gestation, lays down glycogen in the liver, which is a very rich source of energy, glucose, and it lays down fat. And then when the umbilical cord is cut and lactation is becoming established, which those of you who have had babies and have breastfed babies will know takes a few days, and initially there's just colostrum before the milk comes in, it's that glycogen and fat that keeps the baby's energy supplies going, provides fuel for the brain, which has to be glucose or ketone bodies. Preterm babies, if you've ever seen one, don't have any fat. They really are skin and bones, and they don't have any glycogen in the liver. So this is where the phrase nutritional emergency comes in. These babies, once that cord is cut, are entirely dependent on nutrition being provided to them because they have no stores at all of their own. And yet we can't just put milk down a tube because, or put the baby to the breast because the babies can't tolerate that amount of milk right from the beginning. So we have to provide other forms of nutrition. Many uh, babies who are born preterm also have actually been undernourished in the womb. And this has only become apparent over the past, I suppose, 20 years or so, as those ultrasound images that I talked about have become of better and better quality, allowing us to estimate the size of babies in the womb with reasonable accuracy. And when we do that and compare preterm babies with their gestational equivalent age babies who remain in the womb, we find that they are significantly smaller. And that, I suppose, isn't really a surprise. Clearly, if they're born preterm, something has not gone quite according to plan with the pregnancy. It may be that the mother has an illness that's contributed to preterm birth, such as diabetes. It may be that the placenta is not functioning properly. Or in various parts of the world, not in New Zealand, unfortunately, but, for example, the biggest cause of preterm birth in the world is maternal undernutrition. And so, again, not providing adequate nutrition to the mother. So many of these babies are born significantly undernourished and much smaller than they would be 
were they still in utero and going on to deliver at term. And one thing that's become clear from research that we've been doing here over the past seven or eight years or so is that these babies, if we feed them too much too early and the wrong mix of nutrition, are at risk of something called refeeding syndrome. And previously, this has been described in adults who have been starved, most famously at the end of the Second World War when prisoner of war camps were released. You'll all have seen those pictures of skeletal POWs. Obviously, everyone thought the humane thing to do was to give these people something to eat. But when they were provided with food, a decent meal, they became extremely unwell, and about 50% of them actually died. And the reason they died was because provision of food after a period of starvation leads to significant biochemical perturbations in your body that can lead to heart failure and other um, problems resulting in death. And the way that works is twofold. Firstly, when you provide food, certain metabolic hormones kick in to help you metabolize that food, one of which is insulin. Insulin is there to drive glucose into cells so that you can utilize the glucose for energy. But when it does that, it also makes ions move into cells, particularly potassium ions. And so when you feed someone who's been starving, their insulin goes up, potassium moves into the cells, and their potassium levels drop, which is dangerous for the heart. Secondly, when the glucose goes into the cell, the cell thinks, great, I've got some energy. I can now store up some energy in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. But to make ATP requires phosphate. And where does the phosphate come from? It comes from your blood. So again, phosphate moves from the blood into the cell, and phosphate levels in your blood begin to fall. The body has a way of dealing with that. There's a hormone called parathyroid hormone that is stimulated when your phosphate drops, and it acts on your bones to release phosphate from your bones to restore the levels that are moved into the cells. But when it does that, it also releases calcium. And so calcium goes up, doesn't move into cells, and so you become hypercalcemic, have high blood calcium levels, which is also bad for your heart. Now, we knew this happened in people who had been starved, people who were refed after having anorexia nervosa, but we didn't know how common it was in preterm babies. Until recently, we've undertaken a, a randomized trial of 434 babies below 1,000 grams born in New Zealand, in all six New Zealand neonatal intensive care units. It's the largest trial of nutrition ever taken in babies of this size anywhere in the world. And much to our surprise, we found that refeeding syndrome was actually very common. The other surprising thing was that the incidence of refeeding syndrome varied quite widely around New Zealand. We're a small country, only five million people, as we keep hearing from um, our Prime Minister, and only have six neonatal intensive care units. And yet the incidence of refeeding syndrome in those six neonatal units varied between 7 and 44%. Now, refeeding syndrome in these babies was also associated with adverse outcome. It's not just the biochemical disturbance. Even in these tiny babies, it had consequences. So, for example, the risk of these babies having a significant bleed into the brain, which is a complication of preterm birth, was double in those who had refeeding syndrome, 15% compared with 8%. 
their risk of getting an infection, which is a very common complication of preterm birth, was increased one and a half fold from 30% to 45%. And their risk of death was increased threefold from 11% to 33%. But it wasn't just the incidence of refeeding syndrome that was different around the country. It was also what happened to those babies. So for example, in babies with refeeding syndrome, the proportion who died varied between zero and 77%. So huge differences in outcome just based upon the way that these babies are fed. And we can look at the different types of nutrition these babies are receiving and see that there are associations between various components in their nutrition that's responsible for these changes. So even the very first steps in feeding a preterm baby comes with significant challenges. We have to not just provide the nutrition they need to give them the energy they require to survive and thrive, but we also have to get the balance of all the nutrition that goes with that, the minerals, the vitamins, and the micronutrients correct as well. And relatively little research has been done on this area in preterm babies, and it's something that we're pursuing um, vigorously at the moment. Once we've got over that first hurdle of actually providing that early nutrition um, and getting over the hurdle of whether these babies get refeeding syndrome or not, we then start to think about how we can provide milk to these babies. Obviously, breast milk is the optimal nutrition for these babies. It contains so many biological compounds in addition to just the nutrients that babies need. It contains immune cells, it contains antibodies, it contains hormones, a whole host of different elements that are essential for health of the preterm baby. So how do we provide milk to these preterm babies? Well, I've already explained that it's difficult for these babies to suck, breathe and swallow in a coordinated fashion. And so whilst they're learning to do that, we pop a tube down into their stomach and the tube goes either through their nose or through their mouth. And that sounds fine. We can pop a tube in the stomach and then we can put some milk down the tube. But of course, it does mean that the people who are deciding how much milk this baby gets, um, it's not the baby, it's the medical staff who are deciding how much milk to give the baby, how often to give it to the baby, whether to stop bit if the baby looks full or not, or whether just to carry on. But there are no signals from the baby telling us how much to give. It also means that we're bypassing the oronasopharynx. Why might that be important? Well, if you came in here without having had any supper this evening or anything to eat, you probably smelt the kitchen and the smells, and that may well have made you hungry. It also will have done other things that you may not have been aware of. Smell is an incredibly powerful stimulus for food. And in many ways, it's one of the things that provides us the most enjoyment of food. And if you haven't had food but have just had your Pinot Noir, it's still the smell that actually is quite important in that too. So you may have been aware that the smells help you enjoy food, and even perhaps that the smells are making you feel hungry. And if you're particularly self-aware, you may also have been aware of some other things that it does. You may have been aware, for example, that 
your flow of saliva increased when you smelt that food. If you were somewhere quiet and intimate, your partner might have noticed that your stomach was rumbling. And this has all been produced by activation of parts of the brain by that smell, what's called the cephalic phase response, which is a response of the forebrain to smell that prepares your body for the nutrients that it's anticipating it's going to receive based on the fact that it's smelt food. Those responses, as I mentioned already, in include increased salivary flow, but not just flow of saliva, but the things that are in saliva. So the hormones go up. So even before you actually ingest any food, your body secretes insulin in preparation for that food. It increases the motility of your intestinal tract. It secretes gastric acid so that you can break down the food better. All these things are done by smell. In fact, we knew this over 100 years ago. You've all heard of Pavlov and his dogs. Most people think Pavlov got his Nobel Prize in 1904 for the fact that when he rang a bell, dogs would come looking for their food. But that's actually not what he got the Nobel Prize for at all. He got the Nobel Prize for his research into understanding the role of digestion. And what he actually did was, in his dogs, he prepared an experiment whereby in some dogs, he put bread directly into the stomach, bypassing the mouth, and in other dogs, he put the bread into the mouth. And he found that the dogs in which the bread had been put directly into the stomach, the bread was pretty much unchanged three hours later, whereas in the dogs that had gone through the oral route, it had all been digested. And so the question is whether in these preterm babies, we may be bypassing a critical sensory stimulus um, important for their digestion. And we know that actually babies digesting their milk is a key problem for neonatologists. We call it um, feed intolerance. Very simple thing to call it. It covers a multitude of sins. It covers the fact that babies, um, the, the milk may not pass through their stomach, might just sit there. Um, they may bring it back up again. It may be that the milk sits there long enough to actually form blockages in the stomach. There's a very nasty disease called necrotizing enterocolitis that's related to milk feeding. And so all of these complications of feeding are ones that we need to look out for. And yet we don't consider simple things such as the role of sensory stimulation in these babies. We may say, well, how do we know that preterm babies can even smell or taste? Well, taste and smell, of course, are regulated by receptors in your mouth, but actually all throughout your gut. I'm sure you're well aware that you have five different types of taste receptor. Salty, sour, bitter, sweet, and umami. And those receptors are present in the fetus from eight weeks gestation. And they're functional from about 14 weeks. And smell receptors are functional from about 17 weeks gestation. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that preterm babies can smell? Well, people have done some very elegant experiments over time. So, for example, if you have a newborn baby with its mother, and you paint one areola nipple of the mother with amniotic fluid and leave the other untouched, the baby will almost always turn its head towards the breast that has amniotic fluid painted on the nipple and will make those rooting and moving 
um, movements towards that breast and not the other breast. And it will do this for the first two or three days after birth. After that period of time, if you paint one areola and breast with amniotic fluid and the other with colostrum, the baby will turn towards the colostrum and not the amniotic fluid. There was once an interesting experiment done in Japan that we would never dream of doing, um, but it was interesting nevertheless. And this was, um, for some reason, which isn't quite clear, they removed babies from their mothers um, at birth, and they were in a neonatal unit for seven days, just receiving formula down a tube, no exposure to the mother, no exposure to breast milk whatsoever. And they then fed them either breast milk or formula, and through a complicated um, bottle which had electrotransducers in the teat, they measured the frequency and strength of sucking and showed quite clearly that the strength and frequency of the baby's sucks were much greater for um, when they were exposed to breast, the mother's breast milk than when they were exposed to formula. But the bit that I like best is around um, those of you who've had children will know that when it comes to weaning time, this is every mother's dreaded period of time, how to get your baby to eat greens and carrots and vegetables and those sorts of things. Well, if you really want your baby to wean onto carrots when they're six months old, then if the mother drinks carrot juice regularly during pregnancy, even if she doesn't drink any carrot juice at all during lactation, that baby is much more likely to wean onto carrots than if the mother didn't drink any carrot juice, suggesting that that learning of that flavour is not only there, but lasts long term. So we think it's pretty clear that these babies can smell. So how important are smell and taste for these preterm babies? Well, we're, underdoing, we're doing a trial on that at the moment to try and understand whether by providing the simple role of smell, we can enhance the tolerance of feeds by stimulating the gastric motility. And although we don't have the results of that trial yet because um, we're still recruiting babies to that trial, we have undertaken some studies looking at just what it is in milks that provides the smell. In breast milk, it's mostly things like aldehydes, so sweet-smelling um, compounds that most people would find fairly attractive. However, if we add one of the simple things that we routinely add to breast milk, called a multi-component fortifier, which provides extra protein, extra calories, extra um, minerals, it changes the smell profile completely. So now there are many more fatty acids, oxidized fatty acids, some of them, which would add more of a sort of um, fishy note to the breast milk once we provide that to babies, which perhaps is not quite so pleasant. If we give them formula, then the formula contains many compounds that are part of the industrialization process that give off smell. Compounds such as terpenes and other types of um, aromatic carbons. And interestingly, we also analyzed a new product from the US, which is human milk-based milk products to give to preterm babies. And these products are produced from human milk. Mothers in the US are paid a um, dollar an ounce for their breast milk, and then the breast milk is processed to produce these new products, which then are sold to um, provide human milk-based feeds rather than formula feeds to preterm babies when the mother can't provide enough breast milk. It costs $180 a day to provide uh, this milk to these babies. 
And when we analyzed those products, we found that there were significant levels of environmental pollutants in those products, presumably because the places where they are collecting the milk are the industrial cities of the US. So it certainly tells us that the different milks that we're providing these babies contain many different smells that we would expect babies to be sensitive to. And we also know that these smells do have an influence on the baby's brain. So one of my students, Mariana, has been studying how these compounds affect blood flow in the baby's brain using a technology called near-infrared spectroscopy, which is where you put a little sensor on the forehead of the baby and it shines an infrared light just through um, the, near the surface of the baby's brain. And it can detect changes in the amount of oxygenated blood flowing through the brain and therefore the amount of blood. And she's shown that when you provide smell to these babies before a tube feed, there are changes in blood flow in the brain. Whereas other people, if you provide um, other smells, such as, for example, cleaning agents, then the blood flow goes down. So clearly something that we really need to take into account. So what can we do about trying to support nutrition for these babies? Well, the one thing that's also become clear out of that recent study that I've been talking about is that we probably aren't giving babies the opportunity to develop their skills around breastfeeding and to have the opportunity to get only their mother's milk that we should be giving them. And that probably relates to the pressures that our neonatal units are under. If we have a baby that is only a little bit preterm and we're desperate to give that baby breast milk, if the baby's in the neonatal unit, the way that neonatal care is organized mostly means that the mother and baby are separated. Baby's in the neonatal unit, the mother's um, on the ward. The pressure on the maternal beds means these mothers are often discharged after two or three days and then have to come in to visit their baby rather than being able to be in the hospital for as many hours a day as they wish to be or able to be, depending on other children, etc. It means that the pressure on neonatal beds is to get babies out of the unit as quickly as possible. And the way to get a baby home, the thing that determines discharge from a neonatal unit is a baby feeding. It's not weight, it's not other factors other than providing the babies well enough. It's actually, can that baby feed and maintain its weight? And so the simplest way to do that, of course, if the baby is not yet breastfeeding, is to provide formula. And this really is a system issue that we need to address in the way that we provide care for our preterm babies. So based on the research that we're talking about, the things that we're doing next are precisely to try and address some of these issues in New Zealand. First, we're really interested in that variation that I described around the country, um, not just in refeeding syndrome, but actually many other things too that we've found, and why there is such variation and whether it should be possible to come up with some national guidelines around how we provide nutrition for these babies so that that variation is minimized as much as possible. And secondly, trying to work through how we can provide the best opportunity for mothers and babies to establish breastfeeding in an environment that is really supportive for that rather than the medicalized environment that we tend to have, which perhaps um, isn't the best approach to supporting that outcome.
So I think I'll leave it there for this evening. I'm very happy to take any questions. Thanks very much. I'm sorry to ask this, and it's okay if you don't, but I have to say, if someone that you loved, you know, had like a preterm baby or was at risk of a preterm baby, given the huge gulf in, you know, statistical outcomes across the country, where would you want them to be living? <laughs> so, <clears throat> you're right, I'm not going to answer that. Um, <laughs> but not because, I mean, I think the, the point to make is really that... There's an awful lot around neonatal intensive care that we don't have the evidence for. And that's what leads to variation. It's not that people are doing things that they should not be doing. It's that we don't actually have the evidence to know what the best thing to do is. In the case of nutrition, for example, there are hundreds and hundreds of papers looking at nutrition in preterm babies. But none of them are addressing the really important outcomes. And that's partly because Initially, we all start with the simple questions, and so the outcomes have been short-term outcomes. Does this nutrition lead to growth, for example? And it's only more recently that we're starting to think, well, actually, it's all very well to answer whether nutrition leads to growth. That might be an important outcome. But the really important outcome is how these children do as they grow up, not whether they've grown better whilst they're in hospital. And those trials are only just being done now, and we're, as I say, we're doing those trials now. So it's really the fact that there isn't the evidence yet to tell people what they should be doing that leads to that variation, not that people aren't practicing based on the best evidence available. And so the whole purpose of developing national guidelines is precisely to do that, is to gather the evidence, particularly from the trials that we're doing here in New Zealand at the moment, so that we can um, form some consensus guidelines around the whole country that will support everyone doing and providing the care that's based on the best available evidence. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that there was quite a disparity in the um, increase in um, preterm births in New Zealand. Do you have a reason for that or an understanding of why? So the questions around uh, changes in preterm birth rates in New Zealand, there are lots of reasons that are contributing to that. Some of them um, are ones that we can't do much about. So for example, the increase in maternal age is leading to increased preterm birth. The increased use of assistive reproductive technology is leading to increased risks in preterm birth. Possibly there's some evidence from countries such as Japan that if women of childbearing age are actively dieting, that increases the risk around the time of conception, when of course most women don't know that they're becoming pregnant, that increases the risk of preterm birth. But perhaps the biggest cause for the change in preterm birth um, is to do with medical intervention. And that's because previously, when the risk of being born early was very great, as shown by you know, JFK's son just six weeks early, then the goal was to keep the baby in the womb for as long as possible, because the risk of that baby being born early was much greater than staying in the womb. If there is a problem with the pregnancy, then the longer the pregnancy goes on, the closer to term that the baby gets, particularly, for example, if the baby's not growing very well, then the risk of that baby dying in the womb becomes greater. And so obstetricians are facing this balance between when is the risk for delivering the baby less versus leaving the baby in the womb less. 
and as neonatology and neonatal care has got so much better at looking after these babies, the risk of these babies being born early, a few weeks early, for their survival is now tiny. It's really, as I pointed out, it's really not any different from being born at term. If you're born five weeks early now, your chances of survival are 97-98%. So, but that's not taking into account the other consequences of being born preterm. And I think there undoubtedly has been a trend towards um, the birth of some babies earlier than they need to be based on the fact that the knowledge that those babies will do well in terms of survival and their short-term outcomes. And that's something we need to um, redress and that is, is actually being addressed in New Zealand at the moment. The effect that that's had on New Zealand is probably best shown by what is now the median gestation age of birth. So by the median gestation age of birth, that's the gestation age that's in the middle of the whole spread. So it's a type of average. And of course, 40 weeks is why term is term, because that for centuries has been the median. In New Zealand now, the median is 39 weeks. Now, to shift a median by a whole week is a massive shift. Um, and that really is due to um, that change in preterm birth. It's just a few weeks preterm. It's not, we're not talking here about the 23, 24 weekers. We're talking about babies being born 35, 36 weeks, just a little bit preterm. And that's really, I think, where we need to focus is to think, to just keep asking the question, does this baby need to be born now? Or is it actually better to stay in utero for a little bit longer? At, you, you mentioned that they give cortisol to moms who are prone to having premature babies. So it, what would happen to women who are pregnant but might not be prone to that but ended up having premature babies? It might seem slightly contradictory that Montligans was giving cortisol to sheep to induce preterm birth, and now we're giving corticosteroids to women who are at risk of preterm birth. And of course, the, the issue there is that women aren't sheep. And so the, the, the mechanism is slightly different. So in, in the sheep, cortisol is essential for preterm birth. In the human, it's much more complex than that. It does play a role, and the fetal cortisol does go up before birth, but cortisol to the mother doesn't give preterm birth, uh, doesn't induce preterm birth. So the goal is to give corticosteroids to women um, ideally 48 hours before they give birth, if you can. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to predict exactly when a woman's um, going to give birth preterm. So, essentially, the guidance would be that if you really think a woman is at risk of preterm birth, you give the corticosteroids because of the huge effect beneficial they have on the baby. If the woman then doesn't go on to deliver preterm, you can then, the effect of the steroids lasts about a week. So after a week, you can then review the situation and think, well, is the woman still at risk of preterm birth? And if she still is at risk of preterm birth, you can give another dose. If the risk seems to have abated sufficiently, then you shouldn't give any more at that point and should wait until and see what happens. Does that answer, what, does that answer the question? Yes, thank you. Great, thanks very much.